Hey, everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my co-host, Pillar Editor and co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed. Hi, J.D. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm doing all right. I, um, I'm back home. I had a lovely visit to the, uh, to the Flynn household this week. Yeah, you were in Colorado this week, is that right? Yeah, um, it, was, it was very nice. I, uh, I don't get out there as often as I would like, and I didn't get to stay as long as I, as I would otherwise. Um, but it, it was nice to it was nice to set foot in the city and to and to see you and to spend uh, a day or two working in the same place. Yeah, it was nice to be with you. You were here in Colorado. We had some meetings. We had some internal meetings just about kind of our project, the pillar, and uh, and how to make sure that we're doing it well. And then we had some meetings with some sources and and uh, and things like that to do some actual uh, journalism. So all of that was really good. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. Um, you know the, this. Uh, this whole working from home business is is very nice and very liberating in some respects, and it's also nice to you know once in a while actually be in the same room with someone else while you're working with them. Yeah, I, I liked it. I liked every part of it except um, except when you and Mrs. Flynn ganged up on me to tease me about various things. I can't remember what they were now, but uh, at at various times I felt as though you and Mrs. Flynn had formed a sort of dyad of opposition to uh to, to me really which was um... no you're you're mis you're misremembering and misconstruing this entire <laughs> event what happened was mrs flynn and i both uh separately observed certain character traits of yours and then began <laughs> sympathizing about um you know what it was like to interact with jd flynn on a daily basis and, and we found that i and i don't know if the, if this means you're treating your wife like work or um, you you just have a great deal of affection for me. Maybe I treat you like family. Yeah, I was about to say uh, it's possible, but that um, you know it, it seemed that uh, she and I noticed a very similar uh, kind of pattern in how and how you relate to both of us, which which I thought was you know as I said it's it, it's either very flattering or very concerning depending on which way around you want to turn it. I don't know. Yeah. So you and Mrs. Flynn had a grand old time, and uh, and that was great. Yes, uh, and it's always nice to see Mrs. Flynn. I, I worry that she. Uh, I, well, frankly, JD, <laughs> what do you worry I, about? Ed, tell me. I worry. I worry she doesn't like me. Oh, really? Well, Why? You know, because every time I show up, I end up getting you into trouble of one kind or another. But the, we, I, you didn't get me into trouble this time, and I thought we had a lovely time. Do you feel? No, we did have a lovely time. No, you, I'm not saying this is not a reflection on um, on this last trip I had, but that I arrived, you know, e- eager to please because you know I, I'm conscious that I'm probably you know calling you at odd hours and trying to monopolize your attention and things and you know i actually i worry about the same thing I, I i do worry about the same thing if i text you and it's 11 o'clock my time which means it's one o'clock your time i presume that mrs condon isn't like over the moon that you're getting the text and then responding uh no at one in the morning you're fine because she's long asleep <laughs> okay, by then it's, it's really the magic window is sort of the six hours previous to that fair yeah. enough fair enough well again i don't uh i don't I don't um, limit myself to any particular time for, for contacting you, so I'm sure that I'm I'm sure that I've gotten in Mrs. Condon's crosshairs from time to time. I well, I, I think she's well. she's more resentful of me for taking the calls than anything else. But yes, <laughs> well, Ed, here's what I want to talk about today. What I what I want to start uh, with is um, is a, a story that uh, we reported this week. There are a couple of things that we can talk about, but I want to start with talking about a story that we reported this week about Catholic education. Um, the National Catholic Educational Association, the NCAA, which is like 
uh, the teachers, the Catholic School Teachers Trade Association. It's not a union because most Catholic school teachers aren't in unions, which is a different story, but it's kind of the trade association of, uh, of, of Catholic schools. The um, NCEA put out a, a report, uh, well, put out a report next week, put out kind of a press release on the report this week. I ended up kind of getting the, getting the full report, and the report is about um, enrollment in Catholic schools. It's an annual thing that they put out, but this year it got much more attention because it's kind of an annual snapshot of where enrollment is. And, um, of course, the NCEA reported uh, uh, the biggest drop, the biggest decline in, in enrollment in, uh, in Catholic schools in 50 years. Enrollment had dropped um, by less than, when you hear that, you know, the biggest drop off in, fi- in 50 years, I thought it was going to be like 40% or something like that. The, the NCEA reported basically um, an 8% drop decline in, in Catholic school enrollment from 2020 to 2021. There are 8% fewer students this year than there were last year, which is um, which is a big drop. Now, there are some qualifiers to that that, um, that I think are important to know. First of all, Catholic school enrollment has been declining steadily uh, for decades. And in fact, the pace of the decline has been picking up in recent years. So I, th- I want to say that between 2019 and 2020, Catholic schools nationally lost something like 56,000 students. And uh, and this year, between 2020 and 2021, they lost something like uh, 111,000 students. But again, um, that's that's COVID-related. Still, though, to have the attrition rate of 56,000 students in a, in a year is a, is a considerable decline. And the pace of decline is, is considerable uh, in Catholic schools across the country. And Catholic school closures is, is an issue, too. This year, the NCEA reported that uh, about 200 Catholic schools had closed, and that's a big number. But the context for that is that about 100 Catholic schools close each year. And, uh, and one other thing kind of about this year's number, that 111,000 students fewer this year than last year, a large portion of them are preschoolers, people who attend preschool in, in, in Catholic schools, children who attend preschool in Catholic schools. And, um, and that struck me as being, um, it, it was unsurprising to me that preschoolers were not enrolled in Catholic school in order to go to virtual school because that seems like something that probably doesn't exist. And um, it was unsurprising to me that if more parents are staying home, working from home, or out of a job because of the virus, um, they are more likely to keep a a four-year-old at home than to send them to preschool, or, or you know, they'd be statistically more likely, I think, to send them at home, to keep them at home under those circumstances. So it was unsurprising to me um, that uh, there's a large drop-off in preschool. And I talked to some people who said, yeah, that's probably not predictive of whether the same people will enroll in kindergarten or what we can anticipate for next year. So maybe this year's damage is not as sort of severe as it's as it looks. But on the other side of the coin, the bigger picture is an overall year-over-year decline in both the number of Catholic school students and the number of Catholic schools that does um, bode poorly by the numbers for the future of Catholic education. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the the report made for interesting reading, and I and I think uh, you, the the article that we published uh, did a great job of teasing out um, the, the sort of way in which the pandemic appears to be a a sort of um, crisis and an opportunity at the same time, which I found really interesting. That you know, talking to um, different uh, different people at sort of different levels of Catholic education, there was this sense that yes, there you know there was this drop off, as you said, because you know the parents were not sending or enrolling their children in, in Catholic sort of preschool, as it were. Um, you know, I, like you said, I, I, I don't know. Is there such a thing as virtual preschool? I, I, I don't know if there is. Television. I was trying. <laughs> right. Sesame Street is virtual preschool. I, I yeah, was trying I, to find isn't out. Isn't that what it is? I, what, one piece of data that I didn't, that I wasn't able to pick up is sort of whether, what the sort of national 
drop-off on preschool altogether is. There's an organization called NACI, the National Association for the Education of the Young Child, but I didn't get, I, I, I wasn't able to find sort of NACI data about um, preschool drop-off, enrollment drop-off broadly. So I can't, I, I can't contextualize the, the drop-off of, of Catholic preschools, but it seems to me that um, preschool is not the sort of thing one would do if one were not having in-person school. Right. Um, but but either way, I, I think there is this uh, there there is an emerging. I, I don't want to call it an opportunity for fear of it making it sound like we should be opportunistic about this. But I do think, nevertheless, there is as the as the um, as the debate over how and when public schools are going to reopen proceeds, and it does appear that at least in some places, uh, that debate is going to be increasingly fraught. You know, I I don't know. Have you been following the the situation in Chicago at all? Uh, not really, no. Maybe you could summarize it for me. The, the, the Chicago Teachers Union have basically said they, they don't want to go back to work in person right. until there is no more coronavirus, full stop, huh. ever. Um, well, that seems like a long time from now. Uh, yeah. It's, it, well, anyway, it, the, the negotiations between the city and the teachers union are, are not not good, um, uh, to put it mildly. So I, I think, you know, as situations like that continue to develop in different parts, hopefully they won't be quite so acrimonious. The fact that Catholic schools have been in different places reopening and reopening in a very uh, sort of staggered and safe way presents you know a, a point of contact for parents who perhaps have not sent their children to catholic schools before had not considered it necessarily as an option um, whether these be catholic families or non-catholic families and that they might start taking a long look at catholic schools and going well i want my kid to get in-person education as soon as it's safe to do so so maybe start looking at that and i think that would be a great thing because you know, side by side with this, a lot of the people uh, that we talked to in the article involved uh, them saying, you know, that part of uh, driving up the, if you like, unique selling point of Catholic schools is is putting um, faith forward. You know, the Catholic identity and ethos uh, of Catholic schools is is a selling point, and it's you know, Catholic schools are also um, there as a point of evangelization. So if new families end up finding themselves in the Catholic educational system as as a result of the coronavirus, then, you know, this is this is not just a sort of possible outcome that could affect the sort of viability and financial stability of Catholic schools, but it's also uh, a, a pastoral opportunity. And, and I think those two things are related. I mean, I, I think, yeah, so, uh, yeah, there's this, um, there, there are two, the people we talked to in the story talked about kind of two opportunities for Catholic schools. One is people who want their kids to be able to go to in-person school, might enroll their kid at Catholic school, and then they can see that the education is great. And the other is that um, it's an opportunity for Catholic schools to kind of re-examine the, the crisis, a, a burgeoning decline in enrollment, this particular crisis of this year, is an opportunity for Catholic schools to kind of like re-examine w- what are we offering, and not only kind of how do we get more people, how do we advertise better for the school or market the school better, but like how do we uh, do a self-assessment of the school to see if our approach to Catholic education is in line with the church's magisterium on the subject of Catholic education and in line with the church's vision of the human person and um, and the role of, of, uh, of wonder and um, intellectual formation in Christian formation, and how do we just ensure that what we're doing as a school is an apostolate instead of this sort of side education business that we have near the parish that is not really connected to the parish or the ministry of the parish and is mostly, um, you know, running independently and resembles to a lot of people kind of the public school plus plus religion class. Um, the people who we talked to said if uh, said that in their experience, schools that really re-examine 
what it means to be a Catholic school and put the apostolic identity of the Catholic school first and the sacramental vision of the world that's at the heart of the Catholic worldview first find themselves far more attractive to parents because it's a school that knows what it's about. It's not trying to be all things to all men. It's not saying, you know, it's not sort of trying to compete with public schools on on the terms of public schools. It's saying, no, no, no. Um, our vision of education, our vision of the of, of human flourishing, our vision and hope for your child's future is radically different than what the public school even wants to come. So don't buy our product because you're sort of comparing it side by side with them on their terms. Rethink entirely what education is, which because the gospel gives us an entirely new sense of what it is to be a person. I think that's right. I, I think the other thing is, you know, what you said about uh, a, a Catholic schools having a particular anthropology that is increasingly becoming distinct from the public school system. I mean, this is certainly something that's going to be more and more of an issue in the next few years. You know, as we as we look at the sort of advance of so-called trans rights and things, you know, it's going to be Catholic schools that, for example, probably maintain girls' sports leagues that are exclusively open to girls. Uh, and things like that, that, you know, you just won't have available in the public school systems in large parts of this country, you know, depending how, depending on how policy, both local and national is rolled out and depending on how courts decide. And, you know, on all three of those fronts, I have serious cause for concern. And, you know, we've talked before a little bit about why it's, I think, wrong to view, uh, the authentic anthropology as a as a religious freedom issue and to defend it legally that way I, I think that limits the church and boxes it very much into a corner and it also basically seeds the premise of um philosophical and moral relativism by basically saying that objective truths like male and female are um a matter of private belief which i don't think they are or should be um, but nevertheless uh, whether these things are contested on religious freedom grounds or, or more broadly uh it, it is going to be catholic schools that are increasingly distinct from the trend and the and the um, direction of travel in, in the public education system in this country. And I think a lot more families are, are going to be taking a look and saying, well, hang on, what, not just, you know, what faith context do I want my child raised in, but, you know, what basic understanding of humanity and human nature and human flourishing do I want them being, right. um, being presented with as part of their, their sort of formation as a human being? Because, you know... Going with like it or not, going to school is about learning a lot more than just learning your, you know, how to read and write. It's very much a, a question of human formation that you know you are formed by the environment you're in um, most of the time, and you know, for most of us, we spend regrettably most of our time at work, and for children, you know, they spend most of their waking hours in school, and how they are formed by teachers and the other students there is going to have a determinative effect on how they view the world growing up, and so. Um, you know, as the society that we are living in gets a gets weirder and wackier by the day, I think Catholic schools are increasingly going to be seen as a place where you can go um, away from that. And and I think many parents are probably going to going to take a long look at that. I I hope so. Again, I think that really depends on the degree to which Catholic schools want to be want to be Catholic. I, I think, and this fits into a broader narrative about being Catholic in America. For so long—I've talked about this before on the show, and I know you have too—for so long there has been a desire, a sort of social desire, that is was born out of the anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant experiences of early Catholic European immigrants um, to fit in, to prove that they could be just as American as everybody else, and, um, and as a consequence of that, to prove that their institutions were sort of just as good as everybody else on the terms of the world. And, uh, and that's, that's affected, I think, schools and universities, too. You know, Catholic schools want to say we have 
you know, better test scores than um, than the public school does, and we have better college acceptance rates and get accepted to better schools than the public school does. And in a certain way, that instrumentalizes the faith. It says, like, we ha- because we have the faith uh, as an aspect of what we do here, we achieve these secular goods more likely. The faith is a good sort of path to this. Um, you know, being formed in the faith forms you in these virtues that will help you to, like, succeed in life when success is something that's measured on the world's terms. And that's true of Catholic colleges, too. It's why I think a lot of big Catholic colleges like Notre Dame have spent periods of time where they really want to say, like, we're just as good as the Ivy League or whatever. It's because the experience of early American Catholic immigrants was to be discriminated against and to be thought of as less than because of their Catholicism and to thought not to have a place sort of at the American table. With that said, it seems to me that competing on the terms of the culture, the secular culture, trying to say our things are just as good in the way that you define good, so cheapens what it is that we have to offer and so cheapens the way that we think about who we are. I don't want to be just as good on the terms of the world. I want the church to be asking in a certain way, are those tests good predictors of, um, you know, instead of saying we have better test scores than the public school, I would really like the church to be asking, and I think increasingly is feeling free to ask, um, is the test something that is useful in the formation of a human person who, um, yes, can be a provider, but also knows how to live and knows what his life is about and wants to be a saint? Um, is it worth sort of setting kids up so that we're f- hyper-focused on intellectual formation that is geared towards a particular set of um, social experiences as an adult and a particular set of sort of earning experiences as an adult if that comes at the cost of a much broader, much richer um, much um, much more human kind of formation, um, which, by the way, probably does serve those other ends, but doesn't see those secular ends as the primary thing, um, rather sees uh, a, a person fully alive and fully desirous of, um, of knowing himself and the world and God as, um, as the primary thing. And I think schools increasingly feel free to sort of measure themselves on their own term and say, we just don't we're not competing with the public schools in their terms because we have something much better to offer because the gospel has something much better to offer. But if they don't say that, what's the point? Yeah, I would yeah. I would agree with that. The other thing that I would say is that the story that we covered did not include, I think, what is the biggest issue about Catholic schools for a lot of people, which is funding, Catholic school funding and tuition. And, um, and I, <laughs> I bring that up, but I don't actually have a lot of good ideas or a, or a lot of good thoughts about that. I know that there are sort of... I know that cost is an impediment to a lot of people to going to Catholic school um, uh, or, or feels like an impediment to a lot of families to go to Catholic school. I know that there are, you know, various approaches to Catholic school funding that all have pluses and minuses. I know that sort of the stewardship model of Catholic school funding is often touted as being a, 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 a uniquely sustainable and viable model, and I also know that it has serious problems. I know that, you know, finding lots of... Uh, major corporate benefactors is something that a lot of schools are talking about now, and I also know that that has serious problems. Um, that If the parish puts all of its money into the school, the parish is not um, viable for all the rest of the work of pastoral care and evangelization and catechesis it's called to do. If the parish puts none of its resources into the school, the school can't reasonably be an apostle of the parish. So school funding is a major, major challenge. I, I don't have good and creative thoughts about the, the right way sort of to fund a school. I don't either. Although, or for, um, yeah, I'd be interested in hearing some. Yeah, me too. And I think it's something that we should be, I honestly think it's something that we should be probably reporting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, 
If only there was a Catholic outlet devoted to, you know, long form investigative. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I think a project worth uh, worth doing for us. I, I really do, and sort of I don't want to promise a due date on this, but I think a project worth doing for us is to take a look at the long term efficacy and viability of certain models of Catholic school funding and what's what seems to be working and what seems not to be working. And I suspect there may well be academic research on this already. That could be our our jumping off point. Yeah. No, I would read that. Yeah. Um, I guess one other thing about all this that I was thinking about as we were talking about Catholic education is the way in which the pandemic has, I think, particularized and made specific an abstract concept for a lot of Catholics, which is um, the idea of being the primary educators of children. I think, you know, a lot of Catholics, you know, hear all the time, parents are the primary educators of the children. But I think now that, at least for me, has become a far more sort of concrete and realistic thing. Um, and I suspect it's true for a lot of parents that they have a, a, a sort of much more concrete, real sense of ownership of responsibility and and agency in the in the education of their children, which is cool and may well be transformational in Catholic education in ways that we can't yet predict. I would imagine so. I mean, I don't have children, so I'm very much what I understand about all of these things is is anecdotal and sort of secondhand and hearing from other people. But it it, it does certainly seem like uh, for a number of families who've had their kids at home uh, for sort of online learning or have just gone the whole hog and, and started homeschooling for this last academic year, that uh, they, they've become much more uh, aware and hands-on with the educational experience of, of their children. And I think that's obviously wonderful. Um, you know, I think, and again, I'm, I'm not speaking from any kind of personal experience here, obviously, but it, it's been my impression that uh, in some in some cases, parents have felt a little bit intimidated talking about you know the mechanics of their own children's education. That mm-hmm. you know there's the there's always the sort of professional bias problem of you know right. leave it to the pros; they know what's best because that's yeah. why they're paid to do it. And I think I, hopefully this has been um, a demystifying period of time. Yeah, I think that's right. Not not entirely a deprofessionalization, as if professional educators have no role, but for parents of sense that they. They know their children and can contribute to sort of decisions about that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that would be certainly to the good. So I, I, I hope that happens. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we are recording this on Thursday, and right before we started recording it, Ed, I saw something that I thought would interest you a great deal. Okay. Um, do you want to predict what it is? I have. I almost is. is wait, you you only just saw it, so no, I don't know. Probably what a half an hour before we started recording. Okay. No. What, what happened? The. Beijing government has banned... Oh, has banned the BBC. ...from broadcasting into China. That's yeah. That's an extraordinary thing. It is an extraordinary... Well, <laughs> I mean, is it is anything extraordinary for right, yeah. for the Chinese government? Um, right. It's certainly a very dramatic turn of events uh, for the BBC to be kicked out from behind the Great Firewall. Uh, I would assume this is in direct sort of retaliation for the BBC's carrying of a very lengthy interview or series of interviews and reported piece last week uh they they spoke to a number of uh former inmates of some of the concentration camps that are being run for uyghurs in in xinjiang province and gave really horrific and harrowing details of you know and it, we already knew about the sort of genocidal practices that were going on the forced sterilizations the forced abortions the you know the forced labor uh the re- the indoctrination the re-education the the punishment beatings if you know you're caught praying all of these things we actually already knew about but what the the most recent bbc report uh, made clear was that there's also a campaign of systematic sexual torture and rape going on in these camps which you know 
is is horrific if unsurprising, uh, given what we've known about everything else going on there. So I can only assume this decision to to ban the BBC in China is a response to this. I would be interested to know, and I haven't um, I haven't seen all the details yet. Maybe you picked up on this. Did they ban it in Hong Kong as well? Does this? I didn't. I didn't see that. I would imagine so, because. Well, one country, two systems. I don't know. I, but yeah, but now it's like one country, one system. Well, it is one country, one system, yeah. in effect. But I, I wonder if this has immediate extension there or if that's something that's important. I mean, if they've banned the BBC in Hong Kong, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. I, I As far as I can tell, I, I have not seen mention of Hong Kong in any, uh, in any story that I've read yet. Well, it's... Uh... I, I would my knee-jerk reaction would be it's banned on the mainland first because I think there is generally speaking a a different level of technological and informational freedom mm. on Hong Kong than there has been on the mainland at least heretofore so I don't know but either way it's a huge deal and you know as I said no horror coming out of China at this point really surprises me but th- this is a dramatic development and uh I'm sorry to see it, but I mean, it just goes to show who we're dealing with when we're dealing with the Chinese government and the the levels to which they will just simply stop information from coming out. Yeah. They will just prevent the truth from being known or discussed if they if they possibly can. And, you know, this this should color uh, our understanding of the situation of not just the ethnic and religious minorities of the Uyghurs in um, Xinjiang province, but all over the country, all over the mainland. So that when we are talking about, as we so often are, unfortunately, uh, the stories of churches being bulldozed, uh, priests being arrested, bishops being uh, locked up or disappeared, you know, this is the sort of thing that's going on. This is the sort of people that we're dealing with and that hopefully this will begin to infor, uh, inform the opinions of people who, you know, might be called to ask, but what persecution when right. speaking about China? Uh, although I know Cardinal Paroline, uh has, Car- has... Cardinal Paroline, by the way, if you're not... Familiar. A couple of months ago, was asked. Uh, Cardinal Paralina is the Vatican Secretary of, St- Secretary of State, and a couple of months ago, was asked what he thought about religious persecution in China, and responded, as I noted to a couple of reporters, "But what persecution?" Which was really a surprising response to that question. I would call it jaw dropping, but yes, yes. Although I noticed Cardinal Paralina has become uh, the evolution of Cardinal Paralina, I think, is a tragic reflection of exactly how bad things are in China for religious and ethnic minorities right now. Because, you know, as you said, as you said, a few months ago, he was perfectly happy to look a room full of journalists in the face and say, but what persecution? And, you know, for the sort Mm -hmm. of two years before that, since the 2018 Vatican-China deal was agreed, he, you know, would basically stomp around the Vatican, whipping people into line. And God help you if you were a senior curial official who even breathed a a note of skepticism about the Vatican-China deal, that this was untouchable. And now his most recent remarks on the subject, which I think was a week or two ago, he said he had a very healthy respect for people who took a different view of the Vatican-China deal. And he entirely understands why some people would be skeptical and that it is, of course, a very difficult situation. And, you know, there's room for opinions on all sides and everyone's, you know, trying to do their best. And this is a very different Cardinal Paroline from the one who signed the Vatican and China deal in 2018 yeah. and said, yeah. and, and I'm, it's not an exact quote because I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but I mean, this is near enough an exact quote. He said in terms, basically, yes, people will suffer, but you know what? Sacrifices have to be made. Right. Uh, and, you know, so the evolution of Cardinal Paroline, um, it doesn't give me any kind of encouragement or, or satisfaction because unfortunately, I think it's, it's really just a reflection of exactly how bad things are is that even the Vatican China deals most, you know, architect and most trident defender finds it increasingly indefensible. And, and that's a problem. And this is something I've actually been wanting to write about for, well, all of this week, but other stuff keeps coming up is, um, 
basically is the Vatican caught in a trap with China? And this is something I've been worried about. I was worried about before the the deal was renewed in October, and and I'm still worried about now, which is basically you know the the Vatican hoped to ring some kind of well, it it had two priorities really when it signed the deal in 2018. The first was, of course, uh, to bring the underground church above ground and secure some kind of stability for Catholics living in China who were loyal to Rome and and most practically to end the Episcopal consecration of bishops by the communist puppet church, the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association, and that there would be this sort of working agreement on how bishops would be named for Chinese diocese. Now, this is, I don't know that it's been entirely successful in preventing illicit consecrations. I think it has, I think it's been successful in limiting them uh, to one or two, and Rome has sort of immediately agreed <laughs> after the fact, and um, kind of, you know, I've seen more than one occasion when a new bishop has been announced on the mainland by the Chinese government. Uh, you know, we've asked the Vatican about the new guy, and they've not said anything, and you know, there's been a look of quiet panic behind the eyes, and then two days later, say, oh yeah, 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 we knew, we knew, we knew, sure, yeah, it's fine. Um, but it has more or less brought episcopal consecrations on the mainland uh, to a halt. <laughs> whether they be Catholic or communist appointments. Right, exactly. So you're, you're not having the consecration of schismatic bishops because you're not having the consecration of any bishops. You're not having the consecration of any bishops. So these were the sort of, pri- these were the primary aims of the Vatican-China deal. And, you know, I when I talk to people in China and Hong Kong, as I did in, in 2018 about this deal, and I was very skeptical of it, they all basically said, look, give it a chance. We don't know how this is going to work. If we can do something here, that would be nice. Two and a half years later, they all say this has been an absolute nightmare and it's getting worse every day. Uh, but the problem is, you know, can the Vatican walk away from it? Probably not. You know, what's the alternative? Is the the Chinese will then say, well, good, now we have the names and numbers and addresses of X many hundred thousands or millions of previously underground Catholics that we can monitor. And we know where all of your clergy are. We know where all of your bishops are. And we're just going to continue appointing communist bishops as we see fit. And we can make, you know, however bad you think things are for Catholics in China, we can make them infinitely worse. And yeah. so I think China has basically, you know, nailed the Vatican to the to the negotiating table. And even if as they sort of quietly become aware of exactly how bad a deal they're getting, I, I, it's not clear to me other than making even more of a sacrifice of Catholics on the mainland, how they how they get themselves out of this mess. Now, Ed, you interviewed um, uh, uh, Cardinal Bo, Cardinal Charles Bo, who is not a Chinese cardinal, but is um, uh, a cardinal from Myanmar, the, the Cardinal Archbishop of Yangon, who is the president of the sort of Federation of Asian Bishops Conferences. And the two of you talked about China. What was his What was his take on on this situation? Um, well, Cardinal Bo has been pretty outspoken on on the subject of China and civil rights generally over the last two years he signed open letters from religious leaders from across the across the region referring to you know what's going on in Xinjiang province is effectively ethnic cleansing um, and he made the interesting observation that in the past the problem with China was that it was completely enslaved to this tyrannical ideology of communism you know Maoist communism which had killed millions of people and he said the problem today is that it's got this horrible marriage of um, totally unfettered market economy, which he called a monster, and, mm-hmm. you know, state totalitarianism right. in, in almost every other respect. And he said that this is, uh, he called it an existential sort of end end of the world clash between human dignity and unfettered capitalism. 
right. and and I think he's right. Uh, I think that's certainly true. And to hear um, to hear Cardinal Bo speaking about this with this level of concern, uh, you know, less than two weeks after his own country was taken over in a coup, right, uh, was really very striking. <laughs> Cardinal Bo had some very interesting things to say about that coup as well, and the situation of the church in in Myanmar or Burma, if you prefer. Which was very, which was very, very enlightening. I mean, he was, he, he's, he's a heck of a guy, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought, I, I thought that idea that pointing out that that like statist control and then unfettered, unregulated, unregulated capitalism, which the which the church is, you know, which the church's social magisterium is is critical of, sort of an unregulated free market. The John Paul, there's a reason that John Paul II spoke about a free economy instead of speaking about a free market. He drew a distinction between. Um, a market which worked for human goods and a market which, you know, in large part by regulation and also then by virtuous acting, people participating in the market and a sort of wholly unfettered and free market in which um, human beings could be taken advantage of in various ways. And and Pope Francis has really built upon that magisterium. Um, But I thought it was really, (laughs) yeah, I think that observation that sort of China now is sort of embodying sort of (laughs) two competing and... And, and dehumanizing tendencies was was an important one. Yeah, it's, you know, he he referred to it as a monster married to a dragon. Uh, right. That, you know, this is, the, that in many respects, China today is, is the absolute worst excesses, both of sort of Western free market capitalism and uh, communism. That it's, it's taken the yep. worst of both ideologies right. and blended them together into this two-headed monster which is you know grinding humanity underneath it everywhere everywhere yeah. it gains control and i i thought it was a very powerful image that he used in a, in a very um perceptive analysis of the situation you know and i was thinking about sort of the i was thinking about the divergence of sort of political mo- the dangers of the of, of various political models the sort of inherent challenges involved in, in, in various political models as I was thinking about the BBC, because for Beijing to ban the broadcast of the BBC into Beijing is a pretty, it's a pretty, by our standards, I mean, it's, it's, it's an unthinkable thing in the United States because we have the First Amendment and these kind of things. And I mean, it seems to be an extremely sort of strong and draconian move to ban sort of the broadcast of, a, of a, an internationally known um, news organization. But um, in this sort of statist control system, of the of uh, the Chinese Communist Party, it makes sense, um, and it's just the price of sort of doing business. There's there are the Great Firewall bans and all, access to all kinds of information in order to kind of keep people. Uh, it would say to keep people safe, but in order to imbue people with the national ethos and the 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 information that the party wants uh, chi- the Chinese people to have uh, about itself and about the country. So it, in a in a sort of in a tyranny, um, and there are various kinds. One can see sort of this draconian regulation of access to information. And in a sort of free information market like ours, um, the price of a free information market is a, is a great deal of fake news and, and sometimes sort of hate news. I mean, just ter- ter- terrifically manipulated and sometimes even concocted, journalistically appearing sort of uh, fake news, and uh, and which can be socially pr- profoundly socially harmful, profoundly psychologically harmful, and, and spiritually harmful as well. Uh, but both of those things are problems. It, just, it for me, the only reason I'm I'm thinking about it is because it, it points to the reality that there is not. I think for those who who view, uh, for those who view human freedom and human flourishing um, as sort of the 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 central purpose, uh, the central purposes of um, of a government. 
um, there will not be a perfect system. There are sort of gradations of, of evil, but there will not be sort of a perfect system short of eternity was one of the things I was thinking about. And part of the reason I was thinking about that is because there's a, a burgeoning movement among some Catholics to say, well, what we really need are is a sort of confessionally Catholic state, which is not classically, uh, which is not a sort of, of intending to be a free society, but is intending to uh, have have the kind of strong authoritarian government that is able to um, sort of coercively control the flow of information to form people as Catholics and those kinds of things. And, and it seems to me that <laughs> there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of naivete about the dangers of those kinds of things and the the potential for corruption of them. Sure, I mean, if you have a reasonably fluent understanding of history and say uh, Isabel Isabella's Spain or Tsarist Russia, you see what a what a sort of confessionally Caesaro papist state will will get up to and it's none of it good and inevitably what ends up happening is the moral authority of the church is co-opted by the state and then the um the church's moral authority is itself and corrupted by its abuse by the state so even where you know one of the hobby horses i like to ride from time to time is you know the the sort of great uh the, the great historical example of uh the abuse of the church's power and authority in the name of of sort of civil tyranny is the Spanish Inquisition. And the history of the Spanish Inquisition is itself fascinating uh, because it was started um, by the church rather naively, although the actual history of it suggests that it was at least partially successful in this, that the church granted the authority of to the Spanish crown to start the Inquisition as a means of stopping ethnic cleansing in Spain, if you can believe it, that Catholic Spain was so full of these pogroms and, you know, horrible genocidal acts against, uh, you know, particularly the Jewish people who were, you know, forced to convert and then, you know, were accused of being secret Jews and all this sort of horrible, horrible stuff that was happening. The church basically erected the Inquisition as a chance to sort of stop that being done by the civil authorities. And there was this, you know, sort of multi-decade tug of war between the Spanish crown and, and Rome over who had control of the Inquisition and how it would be run. And it, it ended up that um, when the church finally got control of it, of it back from the Spanish crown, um, the Spanish Inquisition as a legal system ended up being far better uh, from a jurisprudential and procedural stance, as well as the care of people who were arrested and also far more merciful in terms of the percentage of convictions and, you know, stopping the executions of people than any any secular, you know, not quite secular because every state in Europe was confessional at that point, but any um, state court system in Europe at the time, whether it was in the Spanish sort of, you know, crown courts or Elizabethan England or Germany or France or anywhere like that. So, um, yeah, I have um, I have very little time for the idea of a sort of uh, strong-armed confessional state as, as a harbinger of anything good for either the church or society, because there are no good historical examples of that ever doing anyone any favors. Um, but what you were saying about, you know, tyranny being the weaponization of information, I, I think is true. And this is actually something else Cardinal Bow told me was, you know, he's, he drew the, he's, you know, we were talking about the, uh, the coup in his country that took place on February 1st. And he said that basically he said this was Washington's fault. You know, yeah, it was said, fascinating perspective. He said that, you know, the, the generals in Myanmar or Burma, if you prefer, uh, only started really pushing this narrative of widespread electoral fraud and, you know, voting irregularities and that the military really won a, a a landslide because this is what people were doing in the United States. And it was, and he said this, it really only picked up steam after the January the 6th riot at the Capitol. 
And, you know, how he put it, someone sneezed in Washington and in Myanmar, a democratically elected government fell, that that's how it happened. And it was it was fascinating to me that, you know, this idea that there's, you know, because I mean, we've had, you know, we've had, we, we all read the stuff that was going on across the country following the November elections over here. And, you know, this sort of, you know, ridiculous uh, accusations or allegations or whatever else of, you know, widespread voting areas that Trump secretly won some massive landslide and that, you know, there was there was this steal that had to be stopped. You know, over here, it was sort of, we all found it slightly bizarre and, you know, leading up to the 6th of January, horrifying. But the point Cardinal Bow made was like, you know, that has, that has real world implications elsewhere. Right. That if the sort of, right. you know, uh, democratic icon of the United States is susceptible to this, then, you know, in other places, it just goes all the way. And the people who are making these claims just take over the country. His phrase was, someone sneezes in Washington and an elected government is toppled in Myanmar. It was, this is an infectious moral COVID, he says. It was really strong. This is what I found absolutely fascinating about about this interview with Cardinal Bo is that he was, um, and I'm not just saying this because it's at our site, it just really found the guy fascinating because he was, uh, you know, on the one hand, he, he did not, he sort of belied sort of the, the neat um, political alignments into which we in America would like um, churchmen to fit, right? Because he was on the one hand critical of, uh, of, of China. He has been consistently critical of the human rights record in China, um, consistently critical of, um, of, of Beijing's persecution of religious people. But on the other hand, he was, uh, he, he was not, he did not by that fact sort of ignore concerns that he has about thing, things happening in America that have impact on his culture. And what I found absolutely fascinating about sort of his, his, um, his not fitting into the it, it, sort of categorically fitting into a box that we, we might like him to fit is that um, he his only reference point like his his principal reference point was Christological. This was a guy who kept saying, you know, the only power that we have as a church is to make reference to the power of the cross um, and 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 Christ on the cross. He, he was it was really a, a, a spiritually rich interview in that sense. Yeah, and and you know he gave the example of JP two and you know. Um, fighting against communism in Poland mm-hmm. with with empty hands that you know right. kept saying over and over again you know yes there are going to be demonstrations in in Myanmar there are going to be pro democracy demonstrations a generation of Catholics are going to engage in these and but what he said was you know the lesson of previous generations in that country where they have had numerous failed attempts at reform and you know the military has been in control for decades at a time. They said the lesson of that is violence begets violence, and we cannot have any of it on either side, and we have to do whatever we can to prevent the loss of life, and that the church gives its witness to um, the the essential and inherent nature of all human rights. But it, when it does so, it's being evangelical, and it's being—he he said it's more than evangelizing. It's more than the church being a prophetic witness. He said it's part of the church's in, in a— what is it, innate identity or it's it's intrinsic identity right right that you know th- this um the and this goes back to what we're talking about a little bit in catholic schools that you know the the church's the church's anthropology is a truth that must be proclaimed in itself mm-hmm. um you know that we often think that the function of the church is to proclaim the gospel quad the gospel and surely it is this is the great mission but that part of the church's mission increasingly in this world you know going mad around us is to proclaim the authentic truths of of human dignity which are under attack you know everywhere from china to the united states yeah that's right okay we have to i'd, I'd like to talk about that more but we have to move on because um and i don't know if you remember but a couple of weeks ago we posted on our site pillarcatholic.com kind of uh, an invitation so if you've never listened to the show before 
welcome. And uh, if you've never listened to the show before, Ed and I are both journalists and um, canon lawyers. We have degrees in canon law, which is the sort of internal disciplinary law and norms of the life of the Catholic Church. And uh, a few weeks ago on the site, we sort of posted an invitation for people to give us topics they'd like us to talk about, canon law topics they'd like us to talk about um, on this show, canon law in five minutes. And, uh, and so I think we may have picked one last week, although I don't remember, but I just, um, we are going to pick one this week, and we are going to talk about it for five minutes or less. So, um, Ed, are you ready for Canon Law in five minutes or less? I wanted to talk about the Germans, but okay. <laughs> okay. I did too. Yeah, okay. I did too. All right, Ed. First Germany in 10 minutes or less, and then Canon Law in five minutes or less, and then we'll play a game. I think we're fine on time. Okay. So earlier this Germany. week on Germany, on Monday morning, we published uh, a 38-page document that was given to us from the German synodal way, their binding so-called synodal process that is underway, which is basically a blueprint for democratizing and federalizing the well, Catholic Church. Well, hold on, let's for... start. The German synodal way is uh, the German synodal way is a gathering of German bishops and lay people that has been called for by the German bishops in order to like make suggestions for they say what they say is sort of making. Um, uh, changes to the church in order to bring renewal to the church in Germany. But what it fundamentally is, is a, 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 year, a multi-year meeting of German bishops and lay people that by its own admission intends to make suggestions for changes to Catholic doctrine and Catholic teaching. I mean, they've been relatively upfront about that. Yeah, well, first of yeah. all, it's not just lay people. It's specifically the the ZDK, the, the Central Committee of German Catholics, which is this right. radical progressive organization that has as its, you know, sort of in, within its own statutes and manifesto says they want the ordination of women, they want same-sex marriage in the church, they want um, any number of uh, changes to Catholic doctrine and discipline uh, mm-hmm. that, that simply are not going to happen. Uh, so this is the group that the synodal way is being conducted in partnership with. Now, right. you said that they're geared towards making suggestions, but the Germans have been very upfront that they are not here to make suggestions. They are going to pass binding resolutions that are going to, uh, you know, they keep saying, well, we're not saying that, you know, this will govern the church in Germany. It's just that everyone's going to have to do it. Where last they left, they said, we're not saying it's binding. It's just that we hope that every bishop will agree to adhere to these rules that we're all going to make together. And we think that Rome should then hold a synod, its own meeting, to affirm all of the things that we do. So they said, it's not binding. And if they don't, we're going to do it agreement. anyway. Yeah. And they said to the German bishops, like, you're free to disagree. Just tell us why, which is, uh, yeah. you know, a rather heavy handed mode of being. Yeah. Um, so we published this 38-page document, which was a document from one of the working groups of the German Synodal Way that was focused on church governance. That's right. And they they have basically in this document set out a manifesto for uh, bishops to be elected, uh, right. the, the church should, that, and also for parish priests, pastors to be elected, that basically right. the they church should that be anyone a democracy. who occupies a spiritual office in the church should be elected. Yeah, well, um, yeah. because apparently the church is democracy, question mark? No, of course right. not. Um, they also want to see a similar democratic approach to <laughs> the changing of church teaching and discipline, which is remarkable. They would like to see bishops uh, basically reduced to sort of an executive function that can be overridden. That was the most interesting of... thing to me is these committees that they have. Yeah, well, uh, there's always a committee in Germany, isn't there? <laughs> right, 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 right. The, the idea that there would be committees at the parish and diocesan level that could override with a majority vote an executive, a, a leadership decision of the bishop was just, I mean, a very, I mean, th- there's a precedent for the election of bishops in the Catholic Church. There are still places where um, the, the priests connected to a, 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 a cathedral uh, elect a candidate for the episcopacy in their, in their diocese. But the idea of overruling a bishop by a committee vote is just a—it completely loses the Catholic sense of what 
uh, Episcopal ministry, the ministry of a bishop actually is. Well, yes, but I mean, that is that is the, the thrust of this document is it, it draw. It, it's basically it, it's funny. <laughs> it's one of the most um, strangely debasingly clerical documents I've ever read in that it tries to separate the power of governance from the power of orders in the church. Now, of course, in, in law and theology of the church, these two are very much linked, that the governance of the church is a spiritual as well as sort of executive function. And that you can't you can't separate the triple mooner of um, governing, teaching, and sanctifying. And that now, orders with, gives you the grace and charism for exercising those functions. That's right. right. And and so what they were proposing is basically to say, well, the church governments should basically be a, a democratic function. And all right. right, you can have bishops or priests sort of as a as an executive figurehead, if you like, but they are subject to the democratic whims of of the people of an elected committee of, the of an elected right, committee yeah. I, I wonder if they would be elected i suspect right, that right. Th- these being the germans they, these would be um uh, this would be a republican rather than democratic um, i suspect that idea. is right you know the the right sort of people have a vote to elect the other right sort of people um, you couldn't just have any old person voting you might actually get catholics and then you don't want that so but at the same time it reduces the clergy to the function of basically they're just sacramental dispensers that is their role is that the only need of the clergy is to dispense the sacraments and you probably don't need most of them anymore because the germans don't seem to believe in sin so you probably don't have to go to confession um and they don't really believe in the sacraments either because one of the other things they they've been very clear that they want is they want women's ordination um, and they want it now episcopal um presbyteral and diaconal you know they're happy for that to happen in reverse order and slightly staggered if it has to but they're very clear they want to see all three so, you know, it, it's unclear to what extent the German church or the church in Germany is still Catholic at this point, if this is really where they're going to go. Now, the Pope has in the past expressed his dramatic concern. Yes. Um, at, the, at the progress of the That's a quote. That's Ger- a quote. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at the progress of the German synod, they have been told, nay, nay, moose face, over and over and over again by Rome, by the Congregation for Bishops, by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, by the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts, by the Holy Father himself, who wrote a pastoral letter to all the faithful in Germany, saying, this is not authentic synodality, what you are doing. This is not what the church is about. This is not how you may proceed. Stop doing this. And they're continuing to do it anyway. And, you know, I, I don't really see how much longer Rome is going to be able to sort of softly push back on this and say, don't do that, because the Germans seem hell-bent on doing it anyway. And we're going to get very soon, because this is the two-year, the synodal process is a, has got a two-year time to run, and we're well into the second year here. Um, at a certain point, they're just going to vote on this stuff. Like this right. this document that we, we, we reported on and published the whole text uh, at pillarcatholic.com um this is set for being voted on in like april or may and yeah. if this passes like rome can't ignore that yeah it, that's it, right we're going to get to the point where rome isn't going to say well we disagree it's going to be one of those it's like well either rome is going to permit the germans to do this stuff or not permit them and one of two things is either going to happen which is either the germans are going to get in line and still continue to respect the authority of the apostolic see or they are not and i mean that's mo- that's why I expect that the that the Holy See, which is reviewing this document now, will intervene. The worst thing would be for, for the Holy See, which would, which it's abundantly clear would not be okay with this document because of its conflicts with Catholic doctrine. Um, the best thing for them would be to get ahead of it before the vote, and the worst thing for them, sort of as a as a political situation, would be to allow the vote, right? Because the last thing that you want is a plurality of German bishops, um, all 
rejecting as a corporate act in mass Catholic doctrine, calling for these you know fundamental changes that reject Catholic doctrine, and then having to sort of deal with this schism at 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 a sort of national level by which they've said you know where this is a corporate act, et cetera. I mean that's just a terrible, terrible situation, and it's not. This is not us sort of like sensationalizing something for no um, is, i've been trying news. to downplay the situation this right yeah this is the situation and it would be a terrible terrible situation if it came to a vote for a bishop to say yes you know i think that a bishop should be able to be overruled on his on his power of governance by a committee is a rejection of communion with the holy see frankly i mean and i don't i don't know how else it would be perceived um and so i think the holy see has to be uh i, I think the holy see has to st- stop it, and I suspect we'll find a way to stop it, which they have sort of put the brakes on various things along the way um, before it gets to a vote. Otherwise, it's just going to be a, a, a really, a, a very serious and profound situation. It's already a very serious situation. It's going to be a, a, a schism. I mean, there's no other way to say it. And and uh, nobody... I, I, I wish I shared your hope. I, I do, because I you said they've tried to, they've put the brakes on these things. Well, in intercommunion, I think they were able to kind of, when the Germans were saying we're going to, the Germans, I guess it was two years ago, were saying we're going to um, move forward with broadly permitting across the country for Protestants to receive the Eucharist in Catholic churches, and, and, and the church's law does not generally permit Protestants to receive the Eucharist in Catholic churches for a variety of theological reasons that we don't need to get into right now, but the Holy See put the brakes on that and said this is not going to happen, and it more or less fizzled out. It's on the agenda in the synodal way. I, I know but, it is, but it right. has. They have. But, I mean, specifically the regarding the synodal it. way, the breaks have. You know, Rome has said this is not an authentic synodality. This is terrible ecclesiology. What your entire synodal process is not, and I'm quoting the Vatican's own legal advice: the Jewish yeah, ecclesiological, not ecclesiologically valid, and they're still doing it. Right. And the problem is, right. and I, this is something I wrote about earlier this week. Um, you know, if you look at, we were talking about the situation of the church in China and the Vatican China deal, and sort of the horrors that the church has been left stomaching to avoid the. You know the fact of a of a national church and schism with Rome and China, you know if if they'll tolerate that, do they have the stomach to stand up to the German bishops? I don't right. know, but I mean that's what it's come right. down to. As I mean, maybe they can fudge a sort of committee vote on, you know, the nature of the exercise of governance, you know, in the church, and they can sort of delay. But sooner or later, one of these German bishops is going to ordain a woman. That's where this is going. Yeah, I, attempt to ordain yeah. a woman. I think you're right. I think that's right. I, I, I think that's right. And and the 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 kind of the situation as it stands is what's going to happen is the Holy See is going to say, you can't do this. And um, and they're going to say, well, um, we're not, again, we're not compelling dioceses to adopt this, but we but we're strongly encouraging that they do. And then, um, and then to the extent that actually put into practice is a committee that could overrule the, the power of governance of a diocesan bishop is, is <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a standoff and... The real question for me would be, so schism is the refusal of submission to the Pope or, or um, to the bishops in communion with him. That's sort of the formal de- definition of schism. And um, and that can include refusing the sort of governing authority of the Pope. Now, claiming the right to overrule the executive authority of a bishop, I think, w- would be understood by m- most people who would think about this technically, to fall into the category of schism because it is a disruption of ecclesial communion and a disruption of kind of the of even the the communion with one's own bishop to which one is uh, obliged um, and a bishop who would say that he would be sub, sort of submit himself to such a thing would be understood to be disrupting himself from communion with the bishops in communion with Rome by sort of subordinating his own authority to that of a democratically elected committee that's not to say of course that there's not a place for con- consultation i 
am one who thinks that there's a huge place for consultation. And there are places where bishops need the permission of like their finance council to act. And I think that's wholly appropriate. But to be able to veto a bishop, you know, for a committee, the finance council, or whatever, to be able to veto a bishop, that, to, to allow for that would be a very serious thing that I think many people would say fits the definition of schism. The question for me is, even at that point, would the Holy See declare, you know, by a formal act that these bishops had f put themselves in schism? And I don't think that they would, which is, again, and I think they probably know that they wouldn't, Yeah. which is, again, why I think what they are hoping against hope, and, and I know you're pessimistic about it, I, I think that at the very least they're going to probably find a way to kick the football down the, the road two years, but I think what they're hoping against hope is they find a way to stop the vote, Be because otherwise... I mean, this is serious. It's very serious, but we're running out of two years, man. We're more than a year into the I know. dare synodal vague. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. Here is what John, I don't know where he's from. I want to say John from, but I don't know. Um, John from the internet. John from the internet wants to know the following. In The Walking Dead. Now, John, I must admit you've already lost me. I do not know what The Walking Dead is, but I presume it's a television program or maybe a vampire novel i don't know in the walking dead glenn and maggie meet fall in love and marry he puts mary in scare quotes if they were a catholic couple wanting to get married in the church is it possible for them to do so when all of society has collapsed and so far as they know they might never find a priest again in their life is there a canon regarding catholic marriage when the ordinary means of marriage are impossible to find can glenn and maggie get married ed yes they can yes they can turn everyone if you would to Canon 1116 of the Code of Canon Law. To the law, Ed. To the law. I think it's 1116. That's kind of off the top of my head. Yeah, here we are. 1116. I nailed it. <laughs> Catholics are bound by the law of the church to marry in accord with something called canonical form, which is essentially the form of marriage that is prescribed by the church and, um, and in which marriage is generally witnessed by a priest or deacon, although a layperson can be delegated to witness marriage by the church as well. But the question is, if Glenn and Maggie can't find anyone delegated to witness the marriage um, or a priest with the jurisdictional authority to witness that particular marriage, um, or, the, you know, because in this case, it seems Glenn and Maggie are part of something called The Walking Dead. I don't know what that is, but maybe they're some of the last people on the planet. I don't know. They might never find a priest again in their life. Um, so they can't observe canonical form as is sort of understood because the person who, who would witness the marriage is not available to them. What can they do? Uh, Ed, what does Canon 1116 say about what they can do? It says that they can marry each other because effectively canonical form is something it is positive law of the church it is positive ecclesiastical law and underneath the positive ecclesiastical law of the church applying uh, the requirement of canonical form for two catholics to marry validly uh, or indeed for one catholic to marry validly uh, is the natural law right to marriage that marriage is the creature of the natural law and that everyone has an innate right to get married so what canon 1116 says is if a person competent to assist according to the normal law cannot be present or approached without grave inconvenience those who intend or, who intend to enter into a true marriage can contract it validly and licitly before witnesses only now the this is true in three circumstances well the first circumstance is in danger of death the second circumstance is outside of the danger of death, provided that it is prudently foreseen that the situation will continue for a month. So if you can't get to a church to get married for a month... The, the law of the church says that you can get married before witnesses, and that's actually why I chose this. Of the many, many questions that have been asked, that's why I chose this one. Uh, read the third one, and then let's talk about it for a minute. 
Okay. In either case, if some priest or deacon who can be present is available, he must be called and be present at the celebration of the marriage together with the witnesses without prejudice to the validity of the marriage before witnesses. So basically, if you can get a priest, but he's not the priest who has the jurisdictional authority to witness your marriage, it'd be good for him to be there. Uh, That's not the situation of Glenn and Maggie. And the reason I brought this up is because what the church says is uh, you have a right to marry. Um, two baptized people who contract marriage uh, together form a sacrament, um, and you have the right to form the sacrament of marriage or the natural law relationship of marriage. Um, it, the church requires you to ordinarily marry according to something called canonical form, um, in which your marriage is celebrated in a particular way and in which um, it is witnessed by a priest, deacon, or a duly delegated layperson. If you can't do those things for even a month, if you are prevented for even a month from doing that, you can get married before witnesses only. Ed, when might that have applied in recent history? Uh, Any time during the pandemic when the churches were closed. I genuinely believe, and in fact, I counseled some people to this effect, I genuinely believe that we had ourselves here in the U.S. of A., an 1116 paragraph 1.2 situation during those aspects, during those times in the pandemic when it was generally foreseen that a person would not be able to enter a church for uh, for more than a month. Absolutely. And when you consider I don't the, know of any. And when you consider uh, not just that you know, it, there was no public celebration of mass for months any in any diocese in this country uh, for points through the pandemic. But there was explicit instructions from some uh, dioceses, some bishops, some bishops, some state level bishops, conferences, some um, metropolitan provinces that basically forbade priests from dispensing any sacraments whatsoever. Or witnessing any sacraments uh, in the case of marriage. Yeah, or witnessing any yeah. sacraments whatsoever. You better believe that we had ourselves a good old 1116 going uh, in this now, country. Now, I am not counseling Absolutely. people to sort of... Um, call in 1116 paragraph one and get married in their living room before witnesses only um, without doing some additional homework first. If you live in a place where you still can't get back to mass or where it's prohibited from you to celebrate marriages and will be for at least a month, and um, and you genuinely think that you will would not be able to celebrate marriage according to the ordinary course of things, I think there may well be cause for 1116. Uh, that is to say, for getting married in front of witnesses only. I think there are some other factors to take into consideration to ensure that consent is exchanged validly and freely and all of those things. So I'm not saying listen to this podcast and then stand in your living room with some witnesses and say, I do to one another, without reaching out first to a canon lawyer or, um, well, without reaching out first to a canon lawyer or to your pastor um, to tell him, I'm going to do this and I would like to make sure that I do it in the right way. Um, But I do think that it is possible uh, that a person could um, kind of invoke or could have over the course of the last year kind of invoke Canon 1116 paragraph one, which I find fascinating because it's one of those canons that when you read about it in school, you think that the situation in which it might apply would be very obscure. The literal zombie apocalypse. Yeah, the walking dead, whatever that is, which is probably a zombie apocalypse. And now here we find ourselves in the unusualness of the last 18 months or 15 months, whatever it is, in which we may well in fact have, actually, gosh, 11 months, in which we may well in fact have this exact situation. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting. All right, Ed, you want to play a game? Certainly. Uh, I, I, I had an idea for uh, a game of greater or lesser as we were recording the show last week and i didn't quite do that um we're going to play a game of greater or lesser but the theme i had and that i thought would be really fun um i've decided not to do because i decided that it was just it made me feel icky (laughs) um you know to use a technical term i was going to do uh, i was going to give you a set of things and you had to decide whether they were greater or lesser than the cost of a month's subscription to the pillar um (laughs) 
And I've decided not to do that because, <laughs> as I said, it made me feel icky. <laughs> this is a bit. I, I always think that talking about money is a little bit gauche, but yeah. I, I would agree with you. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, uh, please do subscribe if you're so inclined. But moving on from that, um, <laughs> next week is, of course, what, JD? Lent. Yes. And what comes right before Lent? Valentine's Day? No. Every year, what comes right before Lent? Lent? Shrove oh. Tuesday. Oh, right. Fat Tuesday. Pancake. Pancake Tuesday. Yes. Good Indeed. Lord. Okay. So <laughs> I, it, I, yeah. I, have, know, I have selected some categories of things that people might be tempted to abstain from, to fast from during Lent, and more people might be tempted to indulge in on, on Shrove or so-called Fat Tuesday. And uh, I'm going to ask you to, to rank them for me in the traditional fashion of greater or lesser. You can, of course, uh, rank them in a positive way. That is, X is greater than Y is greater than Z. Or you can rank them in a negative way of X is lesser or worse than Y is worse than Z, uh, depending on how you feel about any given category. So Now, are you you're asking me these, are you asking me these Fat Tuesday questions because I'm portly, Ed? No, JD. And again, I call it Shrove Tuesday. You're the one who keeps calling it Fat Tuesday. Am I Shroved? What is this? What is a Shrove, Ed? Uh, you know what? No, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole. People can <laughs> Google that. I'm, yeah. No, I got to draw the right. line somewhere. All right. But All right. actually, uh, the, the reason I asked that is because it's an interesting question. It um, is. Sh- you, Shrove Tuesday. I believe it is the... because you would usually go to confession and you would be shriven. Yes, that's exactly right. Shriven yeah. is to be absolved of your sins. Indeed. Um, so Shrove Tuesday is Absolution Tuesday. So it's that's probably the most Catholic name that one could call the, the day before Ash Wednesday. Yes. Um, yes. And, and not being um, decadent or French, I don't call it Mardi Gras. Yeah, me neither. I, that, this is the main reason why I'm not into sort of that kind of thing is because I really just, I'm not into that kind of thing. It's the kind of moral license. And, yeah. You know, the, I mean, you'd expect it of the French, but you, you know. And then there's, a, then there's a kind of, there are, there are, there are those who sort of, put on a certain kind of like French affect set of affectations for the day of so-called Mardi Gras that I just find contemptible. I don't know who those would be, but okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You're, you're, you're subtly trolling someone, but I don't know who it is. So. No, I, I'm, I'm subtly trolling. If you are personally entire, offended by I'm JD's subtly trolling perhaps an entire inc- culture of Americans who are for one day of the year French. Oh, and, I see. You know, letting Canadian times roll or whatever. <laughs> No, we're not Canadians. They're French. I, I, I just want to know. If we're trolling Canadians, I'm on board. I just, I, I want to know what we're doing. You got it. Okay, okay. so, Let's JD, your first category uh, is coffee. Would you rank for me, please, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, and Caribou? Well, I have to plead ignorance on one of them. Which But one? I like, I like one and I loathe one. So I think I'm going to put the one I'm ignorant about between the one that I like and the one that I loathe. That seems hmm. to me to be the only reasonable thing to do. Which means that I'll say that Dunkin' is better than Caribou, about which I am ignorant, is better than Starbucks, about which I have contempt. I, I'm fascinated by that. I, too, am ignorant of Caribou Coffee, but when I Googled largest coffee chains in the United States, it came up as one of the top ones. And it being a Caribou, I assumed that it would be, you know, I, I, I thought it would be big in Denver because you guys are into your horned animals out there. We are, is true. But, you know, Ed, America runs on Dunkin'. It does. You you have you have chosen wisely, JD. Dude, and if offered... this was why didn't we tell that that was like a pretty good product placement? Why aren't we telling Dunkin' Donuts that we're going to do that before the thing, and then seeing if they give us money to, to have exactly that exchange? 
I don't know, but I love Dunkin' Donuts coffee, so I'm going to probably be plugging it anyway regardless. Yeah, it's true. America does run on Dunkin'. It's a fact. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, J.D., sandwiches. Okay. Uh, you, your choices are Chick-fil-A, okay. Chipotle, which, if you aren't familiar, is a chain of um, fajita or burrito <laughs> uh, uh, things that was started in California, I believe. Which is why and I'm not sure why it fits into the... I Jimmy think Jones. It's a kind of sandwich. A, no, it's a, a burrito a is a kind of sandwich? Sure. It's, it, no, it is a, a burrito is not a kind of sandwich. It's a bread product around filling. That you hold yeah, in your hand. Not every consume. bread pot around filling is a sandwich. A sandwich is two slices of bread with food in the middle. Is a is a pasty a pasty? Am I saying that right? A Welsh or Cornish pasty? Is that a sandwich? Uh, I would argue it's a it, it's a sort of. Um, I'd argue it's a speech. I, I would say a pasty is to a sandwich. What? No, I tell you what, because a pasty is baked. Okay, so if I make a burrito and then I bake it, it's not a sandwich. But it being baked is not intrinsic to the idea of a burrito. If I make a burrito and then I deep fry it and then I have a chimichanga, do I have a sandwich? I don't know. But a ch- I, again, a I would say... two slices of bread with food in the middle. Nah. Not a hot dog, not a not a burrito, but I'll is play a your sub, Is a sub a sandwich? Because that's one roll. You don't have to cut it in half. No. A sandwich is two layers of bread with food in the middle, even if they're hinged. But if you another. wrap it, you've got two layers. You can't be serious. Look, just rank the just rank the damn sandwiches, JD. Chipotle, Chick-fil-A, Chipotle, Chip- or Jimmy John's. Chipotle is better than Chick-fil-A is better than Jimmy John's. I figured you'd like the Californian one. I think it's I think the first Chipotle is in Colorado. I think it's on I think it's clo- I think it's on Broadway or, or Evans or something. Okay. I'll, I will take your word for it. Uh okay. Uh, hopefully a less controversial category now. <laughs> um beer, JD. Uh Coors which is, I gather, the sort of national beer of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goose Island from Chicago. And Samuel Adams from the East Coast. We've got all three time zones here. I don't know anything about Goose Island. Oh, it's very nice. It's very drinkable. It's an IPA. Okay. Oh, I don't care for... See, now I'm in a real sticky wicket because I I don't care for Sam Adams, and I'll tell you why. And I don't like IPAs at all. So Can I course, guess why you don't care for Sam Adams? Sure. It's because you really don't like Boston. I really don't like Boston, and you're right about that, but that's not why I don't like Sam Adams. I don't like Sam Adams because several years ago in my home state of New Jersey, I was listening to the radio, and Sam Adams sponsored a contest that would reward people, I don't know, with a year's supply of Sam Adams or something like that, would reward people for um, for the most unusual place in which they would engage in intimate relationship relations. This was oh, that's a, a radio trivial thing that Sam Adams sponsored, and the winner if I recall correctly, was a, a couple who engaged in intimate relations in a sacred space in a church or something like that. And I was incredibly turned off by that. And so, Oh, God, that's I, horrible. I'm never yeah, going to drink it again. I had yeah, no idea. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so insofar as I remember that story correctly, which I think I, you know, I obviously am a little light on the details, I am not a Sam Adams man. Um, so, and I don't like IPAs because I don't like IPAs. So uh, let's just say... Um, Let's just say that Coors is better than those things. Well, you have to you have to do them in order. I mean, you've got sacrilege as the bottom, so I think you can probably figure out where. Yeah. Okay. But I don't like IPAs. Sam Adams or Coors is better than uh, is better than Goose Island uh, is better than Sam Adams. I IPA is the is the best kind of beer. So you're you're wrong. No, but it's, you're entitled to your own opinion. No, it's not. Um, okay. 
pizza, JD. It was, of course, National Pizza Day something recently. Okay. Yeah, and your your categories are actual Italian pizza. We'll we'll assume it. Could, do you know about the sort of uh, in in Napoli where pizza is allegedly from? Um, they have basically a mafia front which certifies restaurants as being authentic Neapolitan oh, pizza. Oh gosh, that's ridiculous. And basically shakes down hey, every restaurant and get certified as authentic Neapolitan pizza. Otherwise, you don't know if an accident could happen. Well. It's Naples, so actually, with the Drangheta running things, yeah, I mean, the accident's going to happen. Um, <laughs> everybody knows that, but anyway, okay. So you've got you've got Italian or Neapolitan pizza, um, Chicago pizza, and I mean, I'm just going to put New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. I mean, for some reason, they feel like every suburb of New York gets its own varietal of pizza. This mm-hmm, is basically that true. the the flat, disgusting plastic cheese hantavirus covered. Region of, for every region of France that gets its own gets its own wine. Um, and each of them is good in its own way. So I'll say that New Jersey pizza is better than Neapolitan pizza. It's better than um, Chicago deep dish pizza, which is really just sort of a, a kind of a baked pizza casserole. Well, you're not wrong about the, the essence of what Chicago deep dish pizza is. Um, but everyone who's not from Chicago misunderstands what Chicago pizza is for and why it was created. <laughs> what is it for? It, it's what created, it, for? it has two functions. Um, it has proved its secondary function, which has proved very fruitful, is basically as something to sell to tourists. Um, I fair, lived in fair, Chicago fair, fair. for, uh, you know, most of my young life. It's where I was born. It's where I'm from. We would order pizza from places like Eduardo's and the Malnati's, and very rarely would we actually get the deep dish stuff. We'd normally just get, you know, very, Ordinary very thin, pizza. Ex- yeah, extremely thin crust pizza. Um, this is mostly a, a marketing gimmick for tourists. Uh, but the primary reason that Chicago deep dish pizza was invented was to prove the inferiority of New York pizza. To basically say, look, we can create this ridiculous <laughs> mutant thing and it's still better than the garbage you guys are New serving on that York. trash heap of an island of yours. That this New is its York. real function. This is what I find fascinating. Chicago has this deep seat. A big part of the Chicago psych- psychology is an inferiority complex about New York. This pizza thing, if it's true, the second city... All of that, right? But the thing that Chicago doesn't understand is that... I, so I'm from New Jersey. I'm not from New York, but I'm from this sort of tri-state area. The thing that Chicago doesn't understand is that New York never thinks about Chicago. I New would York never, never thinks about anywhere, and that's what everyone right, dislikes exactly. about New York. It, it would is, never this occur is the to me. Worst... Chicago's all like, we're in a competition. We're rivals. And you know what it's like? It's like, I don't know if you saw the Lego Batman movie, but I'm a dad, so that's the kind of example I give. Um, in the Lego Batman movie, the, the, the whole have you seen the Lego Batman movie? No. A big kind of plot point of the Lego Batman movie is that Joker wants Batman to say that he's his biggest nemesis, his biggest rival and his sort of number one nemesis and that they loathe each other and stuff like that. And Batman hi-hats Joker in a way that only Batman can do by telling the Joker straight up that he's completely indifferent to him, that he doesn't have a number one rival. He's kind of fighting a lot of people right now, and he doesn't feel that strongly about Joker one way or another. And it just crushes the Joker, and then the, that plot advances considerably because of Joker's desire to have Batman affirm that they are, in fact, the greatest rivals of all time. No, but this um, is my This is what Chicago for, wants. Chicago no, is the Joker in this story. Chicago no, wants no. New York and Chicago to be rivals, and no, since George this retired, is not about rivalry. thinks of this Chicago. Is, no, this is, the, this is where you've misunderstood it. This is not about rivalry. This is not about Chicago who thinks it's better than New York and wants New York to acknowledge it as a rival. It is, it is a genuine Midwestern loathing for the arrogance and self-centeredness of New Yorkers. Oh, it's not wow, relative. Wow, wow. It is objective. What if you wow, ask wow. any New Yorker 
what is New York? They'd say the greatest city in the it's world. The greatest yeah. city in the yeah. world. Yeah. Apart okay. from like London, Rome, Tokyo, Berlin, you know, Sydney. Yeah, I would argue All of Chicago. those cities are the New York. Each of those cities is the New no. York of its country. It would be the silly only if people you were, who think there's people who've be never silly. been to those cities. It would be silly if someone was like, "Someone, t- tell me about, tell me about New York," and I was like, "Oh, it's the Sydney of America." People would be like, "I don't, I don't know what that is." No. Oh, it's it, the Tokyo of America. People would be like, "Oh, it's it's a very, very, very large city that it is kind of like New York." Yeah, it's no, a very all, large city. again, it's only like New, New only people from New York don't understand what makes other cities great and don't make them understand. <laughs> what's if you just if you if you live in Europe and you describe a city that you've been to, so so what's it like? It's a little bit like Berlin. Everyone will know what you're talking about. Everyone will yeah, absolutely but, know what you're talking Berlin about. But Berlin is not in the top 20 of the greatest cities in the world. That Again, have you been to Berlin? Yes. I did not I, enjoy it. I loved it. it. I, I mean, I no, actually, I, as German cities go, I yeah, far prefer but Cologne. This but. is what happens. When you say you went to Berlin and you loved it and stuff like that, what happens is that um, British Utes, ne'er-do-well British Utes, buy a very cheap Ryanair ticket to European cities for uh, what they call a stag night, which is the way British people say bachelor party. And they tear it up at a couple of like bars. You probably went and heard David Hasselhoff play at some bar or something like that with your bros from your early 20s. And you're like, yeah, Berlin's the greatest city in the world. We should all get tattoos. And then you kind of bleary-eyed, red-faced, make it, make your way back to the airport for a 6 a.m. flight the next morning. And then you sleep for two days. And you think, I know about the city. Yeah, Berlin's awesome, dude. I almost I almost met this one chick and she was so hot. You know, like that's, that's, that's it, replace any city with any other city in Europe. And you've got the quintessential young British male stag night. No, that's not true. Um, the, the, <laughs> there is some truth to what you've said about, but that only applies to Northern and Middle Europe. You don't get that sort of behavior going on in, in Italian or French cities. No, that's exactly right. Now you probably now they probably go to Krakow. Maybe they go to Warsaw. Maybe they go to Bratislava. They go. I mean, they go as Tbilisi far as the town will be, for this will kind be of spent. Thing. What's that? Tbilisi is apparently very Yeah, exactly. So they go to the places where they can really get their most out of the pound. But, you know, Berlin's probably still, I would imagine, to be a classic of the genre. No, I, I don't know. Although I, the German city I like most is actually Hamburg. Um, it's very small. It's very manageable. And you mentioned um, hearing David Hasselhoff. Did you Hasselhoff. go there for a stag night with your brother? No, I would course. go to – no, when <laughs> I was in college, my friends and I would go to a music festival out in, in a tiny town, Hamlet. Yeah, you saw village. fish in Hamburg, right? No, it, it called Schiesel Germany is called the Hurricane Festival. No, I saw David Bowie. I saw David Bowie have a heart attack on stage. It was really quite well, Honest to goodness, have a heart attack on stage? Yeah, he literally had a, he was airlifted off the stage. He I've had a heart attack on stage. I've never seen a person have a heart attack in real life. I, I, I wouldn't wish a heart attack on anyone, but I'd be interested to see what it looked like. It was, uh, well, he kept <laughs> complaining it was cold on a blisteringly hot summer night. And we're like, wow, what's huh. going on? And at one point, I mean, David Bowie being, as he was a, a master showman, gave a great performance. And he was also very funny. He kept ribbing the audience that didn't get it. So he would play songs like Under Pressure and everyone, and everyone would go nuts. He goes, ah, you're an 80s crowd, huh? And the Germans would go, yes. And it's like, he's Yes, we love the 80s. Yes. We love the 80s. David Hasselhoff. Yes. Um, but then at one point, Night he, Rider. when he was injured, when he said that they, he brought on a, a, a another singer to sing the, uh, to sing Under Pressure with him. And he said, I'm very sorry that um, Freddie Mercury couldn't be here with us tonight. You know, while we sing this song. And I'm not kidding you. This is my lips to God's ears. This literally happened. The German standing next to me in the crowd turned to me and said, but Freddie Mercury is dead. No? <laughs> I was like, y- yes, he's... Never mind. Forget it. Uh, but like, I came very close to having the, oh, the famous English sense of humor moment. It's like, <laughs> I honestly, I, I guess it must be the famous English sense of humor because I was about to interrupt your story to say, but Freddie Mercury is dead. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although, so you said, David, well, we were on our way into town uh, to go to this one. So, we so the episode, through. the title of this episode is going to be at, at, the German bishops and Ed tells stories about his, about that one time he saw Dave Matthews band in Hamburg. No, I, we were just in a we were just in a bar in um, in Hamburg, and 
they had the jukebox and the jukebox had Neue Neufzig Luftballons, but mm. the, obviously the German language version because only in English-speaking countries do they insist on having the song translated. Um, mm. But so one of my friends put like um, some money in the jukebox and put the song on, and then we all thought it was very funny to listen to this song that no one had heard in 20 years. And you know, da, da, da. so we ended up putting it on like four or five times and someone got up from our table to go to the jukebox and this German um, at the bar turned around and said, for your own good, I would not put that song on again. And, <laughs> and so what what we did, being obnoxious college students at the time, what we do is we put several euros in the jukebox and then put every David Hasselhoff song they had uh, in the line. <laughs> and we were expecting people to get very upset at us for doing this because we thought it was hilarious. But the everyone in the bar was really happy with our selection. We're like, oh yeah, David Hasselhoff, he's great. You know, so the Germans really do love Hasselhoff. That's an actual thing. It's not a cultural stereotype. Okay, so moving on cool. from was that were we doing pizza there? Did we somehow do pizza there? Yeah, we we're doing pizza there. We we're doing pizza there. The, okay, the, moving the, on. The, the the resolution is that Berlin has the worst pizza. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, they do a lot of Turkish pizza. Germ- okay. We're, okay, let's not. We won't. Okay. Um, so uh, your next category, JD, is donuts. Dunkin' Donuts, Krispy Kreme, Tim Hortons. One time when I was nineteen, and now I. And yeah, 19 and studying in Austria, I was there and it was a fat Tuesday and I went to the bank and the bank gave me a homemade donut. And Ed, this is the part that you're not going to believe, but that was mind blowing to me. Frosted with lard. Oh yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> that was pretty amazing. That's so awesome. that. And then what were the other choices I wouldn't lose? Duncan Krispy Kreme. I was just thinking words. about that. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts. I don't... Uh, yeah. <sighs> Dunkin' Donuts. I really don't like either of those things. I know. The Krispy Kreme and Tim Hortons are both garbage. Well, the thing is, I actually like Tim Hortons, but I don't like Canada that much. Um, no offense to listeners. Dunkin' Donuts is better than uh, Tim Hortons. is better than Krispy Kreme. That's fair. I mean, Krispy Kreme is basically gavage. Dunkin' Donuts is in a class by itself. Yes, it is. And all things. Okay. It's breakfast sandwiches are meh. But on coffee and donuts, and it's bagels are ridiculous. I mean, Dunkin' Donuts should get out of... Dunkin' Donuts should get out of the bagel business, Ed. I I really... When they went bagel, which must have been in the late 90s, I was flummoxed that they thought that they could compete with ordinary bagels. And then as I've moved away from the East Coast into other parts of the country, I've realized, oh, sometimes the only place that you can get a bagel is like a Dunkin' Donuts or Einstein's or some other place that makes a facsimile of a bagel that's not actually a bagel. So in other parts of the country, I think even the part where I live now, I think maybe people don't know what bagels are, so they think it's fine. But Dunkin' Donuts should get out of the bagel business, as should every chain that doesn't know anything about making bagels. I do not like that. Okay. Dunkin' Donuts, Tim Hortons, the other thing. Dunkin' Donuts, Krispy Kreme, Tim Hortons. Okay. Or, or it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. Uh, so we're going to do whiskey next. Now, I'd originally, okay. in, obviously, all true whiskey comes from Scotland, which is why. I don't drink scotch. Again, I was just about to say, don't call it scotch because by its nature, if it's whiskey, it's coming from, it's like you wouldn't say American bourbon, all bourbon comes from America. You wouldn't say French champagne because all champagne comes from France. But anyway, um, so I was going to have you do Highland Island or Lowland, but instead, because I knew you would end up making us uh, talk about your favorite whiskey, which is in fact from Ireland. I just decided to cave into what I knew were going to be your tastes. And so instead, J.D., could you rank, please, Irish, Scottish, or Japanese? Well, Japanese Japanese whiskey, which is can be very expensive and which people who like that kind of thing say is very good, is actually 
uh, whiskey in the Scotch style. So it's Scotch. It's Scotch whiskey. That is, whereas Irish whiskey is a triple distilled thing. It's a different thing. Um, so I would say Irish whiskey, and then and then I would have to say Scotch, and then Japanese because Japanese whiskey again is just sort of a, a Scotch made in Japan. So um, Irish. I thought you were going to ask me to rank Irish whiskeys, which I'd gladly do as well. But if you um, would, like, Irish, if you have a top three Irish whiskey, I will take that ranking. Sure, Jameson's Powers. I thought you were going to ask me to rank Jameson's Power. I honestly thought you were going to ask me to rank Jameson's Powers and Bushmills. And I don't drink Protestant whiskey, so I was going to say Jameson Powers and other Patties. Pa- sure. Okay. There so are any number of other sort of. Yeah. What's but, that? But you're you're going with? Do you think Jameson's is the best whiskey in the world? Jameson's is the best rank. I'm going to rank whiskeys according to what I want. What I if I had to buy one bottle in the liquor store, what would I buy? And I'd buy Jameson because it's a good everyday whiskey. Jameson's if you're drinking the, whiskey every day. And I want I want the know, full horror of what I'm about to say and the full truth of it to sink in. Jameson's is the Budweiser of whiskeys. I, I understand what it is. Okay. I don't agree with you, but I understand that it ha- perhaps has that reputation in Ireland, but I nevertheless care for it a great deal, perhaps more than I ought. I don't know. Fair enough. Okay. Um, now, accepting that you do not now smoke. You're a non-smoker. I am a non-smoker. Nevertheless, would you rank for me, please, Marlboro Reds, Camel Blues, American Spirit Blacks? <laughs> it's been a little while. Camel Blues? Do you mean Camel What used to be called Camel Lights before you weren't allowed to say light anymore? Exactly. Okay. So what used to be called Camel Lights, which I still call Camel Lights, which, by the way, I don't smoke, but if you went into a convenience store and said, a pack of Camel Lights, please, the person would know what to do. I don't know if they would know what to do if you said a pack of Camel Blues. Uh, the but reverse anyway. is actually now true. Oh, because the kids. Yeah, the kids that are running the, yeah. the shop window these days, they weren't alive when you could call them lights. <laughs> oh, gosh. Camel lights. What American spirit did you give me? Black. Which is what? It's the it's the really good stuff. Okay. Uh, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you a story about Marlboro Reds. Uh, Ed and I have a had a professor in common. His name is Father John Beale, and Father John Beale is no longer a smoker, but he used to be a smoker, and he used to smoke Reds. And uh, it had been – this story takes place when I was in Canon Law School. I was an intermittent smoker in graduate school, and, but I had not smoked in a couple – in a couple of months, actually. I had not smoked in a couple of months, but then I decided I wanted to have a cigarette. And uh, Father Beale was outside smoking a cigarette. And Camel Lights are my general cigarette of choice, maybe a Turkish Gold once in a while to throw it, you know, to kind of mix it up or whatever. But Wides, you remember Camel Light Wides? Those were good. Yep. But anywho, it's the same cigarette. But anywho, um, if you don't smoke, you should know that that's a, that's a medium-range cigarette, right? I mean, it's sort of like medium strength. Um, Camel Reds are an extra-strength cigarette. So I... Father Beale was outside having a cigarette, and I said to him, hey, Father, could I buy him a cigarette? And he said, but you don't smoke. And I said, no, you know, I smoke sometimes, but I don't smoke that often. And he said, I didn't, I don't think you're a smoker. And I said, no, I, I am. And he said, well, if you say so, but I don't think you're a smoker. And he handed me a Camel Light, or excuse me, he handed me a Marlboro Red. And there, I, I'm in a situation where I have not spoken in a couple of months, and he's handed me an extra strength cigarette where I, where I usually smoke medium cigarettes. And I had just said to him, no, 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 I, I smoke, you know, because he's saying, I don't think you smoke. And so I've got to sort of say like, no, 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 I smoke. So of course, I light the thing, I take one drag and I erupt into a coughing fit. At which point, Father Beale says, well, you weren't a smoker and it looks like you still aren't. And put out his cigarette and walked away. Nice. Yeah. It was that. Uh, so anyway. So he thought you were trying to impress him by being cool. He thought I was trying to impress him, get a good grade, whatever, or like, yeah, cozy up to him. But I wasn't. I just wanted a cigarette. But anyhow. Okay. Uh, lights. Um, uh, Marble Red, American Spirit, whatever. Okay. 
Fair enough. And uh, chocolate, Cadbury's, Hershey's, or Giardelli. Oh. Hershey what? Uh, your bog standard Hershey bar. Okay. And, it, and in England, they have something called a Cadbury bar because we only think of Cadbury as the cream eggs. No, Cadbury's dairy milk. The real stuff. Not the stuff oh, made right, under right, license right, right. by Hershey's in the United States, okay, which is basically yes. just Hershey's okay. in a purple wrapper, but the actual... Dairy milk. I don't like Ghirardelli, actually. So dairy milk, Hershey, Ghirardelli. Uh, controversial, but okay. And finally, barbecue. Brisket, pulled pork, or wings? Wings. What's brisket? I don't... What do you mean, what's brisket? It's like it's like a slice of, slice of meat. I just don't get barbecue that often. What? <laughs> I'm getting around with you. Okay. I'm just trying to get your goat. Uh, wings, pulled pork, brisket. I'm sorry. You're ranking wings are greater than pulled pork are greater than brisket? You asked me what I think. You, I'm telling you what I think. You're going to get some sass on the Twitter for this. I'm just warning you now. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for playing Greater or Lesser Shrove Tuesday Edition, JD. That was extremely indulgent of you. Well, thank you, Ed. And thank you, dear listeners, for hanging in there with us um, as we heard about Ed's stag party and other bits of nostalgia. Um if you like the Pillar Podcast, you can get uh, Pillar newsletters in your inbox by signing up um, for free at uh, PillarCatholic.com. And if you think the work we do is worth paying for, you can um, pay for it there as well. Uh, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, LLC, a JD and Ed production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And everyone, have a blessed Lent. <laughs>